Hello, hello, hello. My name is Courtney Turner, and you are listening to Bluegrass Community Foundation's Do Good Radio Hour. Now, I have a question for you. Did you know, as of 2022, the Kentucky bourbon industry has begun pouring $9 billion, billion with a B, $9 billion into the state economy? And with that growth, the bourbon industry is working to make long-term sustainable changes in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's why Castle and Key Distillery, alongside the Kentucky Black Bourbon Guild, established the Diversity in Kentucky Distilling Scholarship to aid students of color who want to pursue a career in distilling in Kentucky. The scholarship is worth $5,000 and is renewable for more than one year of study. So for more information on the scholarship, how you can get involved, how you can apply, visit bgcf.org slash scholarships. $5,000. That is renewable, y'all. Go check it out. Today's guest is someone whose name I've heard on many different occasions. Before meeting him, I knew the perspective he brought to the many tables of our community is invaluable, and I was so excited to have him in the pod lab today. He is a radio DJ, a musician, and even if he doesn't know it right away, he is a very intentional advocate. Here is DeBron Thomas. Well, and I think a lot of it was the fact that they were in that old, um, you know, in the school where steam used to be, and I don't know what oh, the, I don't I know, know what the, uh, I don't know what the, um, uh, yeah, I don't know what the, what the air circulation situation was like, but everything was just old there, so. I guess it makes, I've never even thought about it, but I guess it makes sense to not have air continuously mm-hmm. circulating because of noise, mm-hmm. but also, sweat. These are also much better built studios because okay. the other ones were literally wooden boxes. Oh gosh! So, yeah, you're a radio guy, right? Uh, some, some, something like that. <laughs> yeah. When did you get started in that? Um, jeez. So when I graduated high school, 
Um, I had applied to two schools. It's mm-hmm. only relative because of how of my journey, but I apply, only applied to two schools: UK and San Francisco State. Oh. I didn't get. I got into San Francisco State, and then they saw my second semester grades and booted me. My mom had <laughs> my mom had breast cancer, so I wasn't really worried about right. school at that point yeah. in time. Um, so, anyways, I went to a community college called College of San Mateo, which is home to KCSM, which is the home of the third largest collection of jazz in the world. Cool. Um, I did a little broadcast stuff there, um, and then my acceptance letter to UK came a year late. So oh. I was in my second semester of community college when I got it. Love that. Um, and then I um, saw, like, when I looked things up, I saw RFL and all kinds of things here. So when I moved here in 2008, uh, I started DJing at RFL, and that was kind of where I really got started doing practical stuff. Right. Um, and then I've been at the station since... Part-time since 2012, full-time since 2019. Okay. Do you love it? It, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it definitely has its challenges. Sure. But, um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's not a bad place to be. Let me grab my tea. Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, I'm going to do a little slate and then we'll get started. We usually do it in two segments. Okay. That's good. Okay. DeBron Thomas, segment Mm -hmm. one. Hi, DeBron. How are you? Doing okay. How are you? Doing good. Thanks. What are we drinking? What is that? Yerba Mate. What? What is that? It is a caffeinated tea. It's very popular in South America. It has um, more caffeine than coffee does, but the way that it um, at least works for me is the caffeine buzz is much steady. You know, like coffee, uh, you drink you drink coffee and it gets you up real good yeah. and then it just brings you right down. Yeah. Um, the Yerba Mate very much is more of a, like, you know, longer little... Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like a green tea mm-hmm. scenario? Yeah. Okay. Is it hot or is it cold? Uh, I drink it hot. Love yeah. that. Where do you yeah. get it? Um, the grocery store, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Some people have very specific places where they get... Like teas and coffees, so I didn't know if you. So I would say that, um, as with many things in the pandemic, um, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there's been supply chain shortage, so it has been harder for me to get it over the sure. last few years. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I'm the only one that drinks this stuff, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, it's. It, it, I mean, it has been a little bit harder to come by, but I think that's just you know part of the supply chain thing. Right, mm-hmm. you're keeping them in business. I'm sure they appreciate Trying that. Trying to. <laughs> Now, I was doing a bit of research before you came in mm-hmm. today, and we aren't into labels on the show, but I do want to list a few ways that you have been described in kind of this zeitgeist. That's, that's a okay. dangerous, that's a dangerous, I've, I've, I've seen some really mean things. <laughs> These are all pretty good. Oh, These are okay. all pretty good. We've got musician, radio personality, radio DJ, which I'm excited to hear which one you prefer, a philanthropist. A community organizer and a lifelong UK fan, though a Californian. Yeah, I would. I mean, I yeah, I, I would say that that's pretty accurate. My um, my cousin Mike went to UK, and um, he's the well outside of Clem. Ha- well, yeah, I don't guess Clem didn't come here, but uh, outside, yeah, he's the one of the only people in my family that I know that went to UK. Mm-hmm. And I was like six, and he was a Cutco salesman, and. Um, he was talking about UK, and it's just ever, ever, ever since then, I've been a UK fan. And where are you originally from? I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I grew up in a city called Menlo Park, which is in the peninsula, um, south, San, you know, kind of smack dab in the middle of, uh, in between San Francisco and San Jose. It's the city next over from Palo Alto. So Stanford is in 
Stanford is in Stanford, California, which is technically in Palo Alto. And uh, so I got a lot of flack back in the day, especially during that final four where uh, we beat uh, Stanford. Mm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just got back from California last week. The first time I had Mm -hmm. ever been. It is gorgeous there. It's beautiful. What part were you at? We went into Santa Ana. Okay. We did Anaheim and Mm -hmm. then we did Palm Springs. Okay. We were only there for a few days. We went to a Harry Styles concert. Nice. It was a lot, but it was gorgeous. I don't know why I was surprised. I think I was thinking just desert. And while it was a desert, the mountains are so gorgeous. It was a great time. So what brought you to Kentucky? Um, Well, I think from a practical standpoint, I came on a plane. Um, (laughs) But my mom's family is originally from Adair County, and I uh, came... Um, I used to come visit, you know, Lexington or Louisville and um, that area um, over the summers and stuff like that. And uh, I had kind of always had a love for, the, you know, for this state, for the, for the climate, for the, you know, the landscape, the climate. And um, yeah, I mean, and I, and I think that knowing that my family is from here is I've always had like a particular connection, sure. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, take us to musicianship. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? Have you ever thought about being like a full-time music? Are you a full-time musician? What do you tell? Tell us the everything that you do because it's a lot. I wish I could be a full-time musician, although it sounds a lot stressful depending on where you're at. It sounds like it can be a lot more stressful than a, <laughs> than others sometimes, but. Um, yeah, uh, so I am a musician, um, and I would say that I am a professional musician. Um, it is not my full-time job. It is just one of many jobs mm-hmm. that I have, um, and there are different aspects of it. There's the um, performance and writing side where, um, you know, I work on my own stuff. Um, sometimes, I, you know, I sit in with people, uh, but I think mainly – especially since the pan- pandemic, because I haven't been performing out as much. I'm trying to work my way back into it. Um, but I've been doing a lot of work with the Allegro Dance Project. It's an organization oh, cool. that I've been working with pretty much since they started. Gina Clavine is the um, artistic director, and they um, basically teach uh, dance, do dance workshops with uh, kids and young adults with specific needs. Mm-hmm. And um, I broke my finger like r- 2015, yeah, um, right after my um, first album came out, and that was working in those workshops was my like way back into music, and it was really, um, I really appreciated it because, you know, yes, I would have when we started back up, I would do kind of, you know, we would basically Gina would just kind of let me figure out how comfortable I was. Right. So, you know, some one, one class I'd be able to do like 10, 15 minutes. Some days I wouldn't be able to do as much, but I always was able to kind of work my way back. But one of the things that was really inspirational to me was anytime I was frustrated with myself, I would sit here in, in the class and I would watch these kids just like straight, just doing everything, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, well, you know, if they are doing this, I have no excuse to continue working. Um, so that's, you know, that's something I'm really passionate about. Uh, we do shows every year to raise money for the, for the programs that we do. Um, and then, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other thing that's uh, like associated <laughs> with that. I mean, you know, cause like people ask me to play, um, you know, to, 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 to sit in actually right before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of, uh, I was doing a lot of guitar work down at the dojo. Um, mm-hmm. there were like several hip hop artists that had asked me to, you know, lay some tracks down and stuff like that. And that was 
a part of me kind of getting back into playing music, which ironically enough, now that we've gone through all of this, it's just kind of a full circle moment. But, um, you know, I really appreciate recording music. I really appreciate playing music and I really appreciate listening to music, which I guess leads into my day job at the radio station. And I'm around that all the time. I started a show um, when I was a DJ at a WRFL called the Conkadelic Funk Show. Um, and that is the... Um, the it airs on uh, Saturday nights at nine at the uh, on the station. Um, it's something that I've been doing for a long time. It's wild to think. I think we're in year fourteen of oh the Crocodile Funk Show, uh, which is again just like really wild to think that I've even been doing it this long because it really doesn't feel like I've even been here this long mm-hmm. in Lexington. Um, so yeah, so I do that Saturday nights at nine, and then Monday through Friday I host Rock and Roots, which is our um, you know our midday show uh, from nine to noon. Um, we play you know a little bit of everything. Um, it, the format is called AAA, which is Adult Album Alternative. Uh, but since 2019, we really have been making an effort to uh, diversify the playlist. Um, you know, we had this show called Rock and Roots that at one point in time didn't particularly play very many artists of color. And given sure. that black people invented rock and roll, that's unacceptable. <laughs> so uh, it's, you know, it is a ever evolving uh, thing. It's one of those things where we're not going to get to where we want to, but that's just the nature of it. Like, sure. cause you know, there's always more to do, uh, but we're putting in the work to make, you know, diversify that playlist. And I think that listeners have been really receptive to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, that's been kind of, kind of great. Um, and I, I think that during the pandemic, because I guess the difference is, it's like, it's been really great to be live on the air every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially through this pandemic, because I grew up loving radio. Um, the person-to-person connection that you get on radio, I think, is something that you don't really get in any other medium. TV's like way different. Um, and especially when you think about it from the standpoint that you and I are talking into microphones right now. Right. And one person and other people are listening <laughs> on the other end of that. Right. Uh, and we, you know, we got a lot of calls and stuff up from people who were just expressing um, how much they appreciated what we do. And, I, you know, to me, that's like the reminder of like, oh, yes, I have to come in every day mm-hmm. and show up and be prepared because people are depending on me to just be there. Um, and so it's an absolute blessing. And I'm really, really grateful to be able to do it. Oh, I love that. Now. I obviously don't know you as a person very well, but you definitely seem to be a person who is about intentionality. I feel like a lot of the projects that I've known you to be a part of are very purpose-driven. There's always a goal at the end. Do you agree with that assessment of yourself? (laughs) Uh... You know, uh, quite honestly, a lot of it is just flying by the seat of my pants and figuring it out <laughs> along the way. Uh, there's definitely planning in some things, but um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm intentional in the way in which I navigate through certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I guess, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's pre- I sure. guess that's accurate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that leads me into taking back cheap side. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever get tired of talking about Taking Back Cheap Side, but it's one of the coolest projects that I've heard of that I've got to to see. Can you walk us through, one, the process of how that got started, but really the changes that you all put into effect? Mm, okay. Um, yeah. Well, I guess a little background. Um, so for me, 
the um, my involvement in everything kind of starts around 2012. So you know, Trayvon Martin was was murdered in Sanford, Florida, by George Zimmerman, and um, before I had moved here to Lexington in 2008, um, on actually New Year's Day of 2008-2009, Oscar Grant uh, was murdered by Johannes Meserly at uh, the BART station in, uh, the Fruitvale station in Oakland, California. And that was like the first time that a situation where an unarmed black person was murdered and it was captured on film Mm -hmm. because everybody sitting on those, uh, the BART car had a flip phone or a cell phone or whatever that, and they, you know, at that point in time, video phones were, you know, were just kind of starting to become popular. Um, And so that was a moment in time that really activated me into being really aware of kinds of things because my parents had always talked about what it was like to grow up in in the 60s. I mean, well, my mom really has talked a lot about it more since the pandemic, which has been, you know, which we can get to later, but (laughs) It's been another eye-opening thing. But for me, um, you know, it's a difference between hearing about all these things that happened and hearing that this happened, quote unquote, a long time ago, even though personally I was born 20 years after the moon landing. So it wasn't that far from my life. Right. Um, But it was, uh, you know, a situation where I first saw like, oh, no, this is actually still happening. Like, I know that it was still happening. You know, we knew that it was still happening. But here is, um, you know. Uh, undisputable proof that this is still going on. Um, so fast forward to 2012 when Trayvon Martin was murdered, um, similar conversations kind of started coming back up. So for me, where I entered into that is around that time in 2012, uh, or no, I guess in 2013, there was a um, uh, there was a community gathering, a town hall that was put on at the Carnegie Center that uh, Dr. Bianca Spriggs um, organized. And at that point in time, this was right after um, Dylan Roof had murdered uh, nine people in uh, you know South Carolina, and a lot of that conversation was about you know what do we outside looking in what do we you know what do we do about these kinds of things and in any situation you can't really focus on what other problems are or what other people's problems are without kind of looking within yourself right. and so. In that same day, um, obviously, you know, conversations about the Confederate monuments came up and I'd had a couple conversations with people there uh, about it. And then uh, there was another uh, event that happened um, that was part of the Urban County Arts, the Urban County Arts Review Board, UCARB, um, which was designated, which their whole purpose is to um, basically talk about public art and its significance and uh, appropriateness. And mm-hmm. so anytime there's anything related to an installation or something like that, the UCARB is, uh, at least within the city, is part of uh, who helps kind of create and curate some things. So in 2015, um, Mayor Jim Gray had asked the Urban County Review Board uh, to um, look at the, you know, the, the Confederate monuments that were that were at, at formerly at Cheapside. Um, and, you know, this was a conversation that had been going on uh, for several years. And I should also mention that um, that year that the uh, second town hall happened at the Carnegie Center, um, that was specifically around a lot of things, but they talked about Confederate monuments. And that was the first time I remember being in room with 
um, white supremacists that weren't hiding within the white supremacist power mm. structure, that they were very much out and proud of, uh, of their beliefs. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of like an, an interesting prelude to what would come. Um, so Mayor Gray had, um, you know, made this re- had made this recommendation to the UCARB to figure out what was going on. I guess the context is someone spray painted Black Lives Matter on the John Hunt Morgan statue. And before that, about maybe two or three months before that, uh, someone had run over the um, historical marker that is that Cheapside that tells the uh, the history of, of the space. Mm-hmm. So this marker was broken. Uh, someone had spray painted Black Lives Matter on the John Hunt Morgan statue. And so then there was a, you know, a, lo- a louder conversation around it. So Mayor Gray had then basically given to the UCARB uh, the responsibility to make recommendations on what they should do. Um, in February, or I guess uh, in November of 2015, uh, the UCARB had recommended that the um, the, the statues be removed and that the historical marker be brought back. Um, Mayor Gray in February of 2016 uh, came out and said that the statues would stay and that there would be added historical context to the space. And that was kind of the jumping off point for um, for me because it was like my mom – I feel like I'm rambling, but my no, mom um, was a uh, worked in city government, and she's a big influence on on me and the way that I see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was not a politician, but she was someone who worked within government that many politicians had to go through, well, absolutely, or work with. Um, and so I was a b- big believe of like, okay, trust the process. You know, this it is takes all- a long time, right? It's yeah, gonna, you know. And then the process was. We gave this opportunity to this group of people to make a decision. They made a decision, and then the response was, well, we're not going to do that. Right. So kind of with that, then um, I started talking about it on social media, talking about it with, with with lots of people. And then fast forward to... Uh, June of 2016, um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are murdered in the same week. And um, Russell Allen and I, um, I the co-founder of Take Back Cheapside, we were at his CD release party and um, decided that we were going to do some. We were going to do something about it. And so that was when we organized the very first rally. And um, you know, kind of things things kind of went on from from there. But that was kind of really the how things kind of got started. Mm-hmm. And. What do you say to those people who, and I know that you know them, I know that I know them, the people who are like, they're just statues. Like, why are we taking them down now? It's been years and years and years. And, and what's the point? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? Um, well, the thing is, is specifically at Lexington, there's a real bad problem as to whose story gets told, whose history gets told. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I mean, there are there are so many incredible black people that have come from this city or just incredible non-white people or incredible people who are not white men uh, that have made a tremendous impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and their stories need to be uplifted in the same way in which all of these other people's stories that we've heard a million times are. Uh, and so my the middle ground that I had for that was um, – you know, I can understand if someone dis- disagreed with it or whatever, but in terms of the, at least for myself, the frame of reference that I use to figure out whether or not I could have a conversation with someone about it is if you can get meet me in the middle 
and understand that there are statue there were statues of two men who fought to uphold slavery literally standing on a space where people were bought and sold right if we can get to that middle ground and like oh yeah no that's not really cool we can have a further conversation if you're going to fight with me on that i wasn't willing to have a conversation with you because there's no there's no point i'm not wasting my mental and emotional energy on that right what's next i mean you talk a lot about there's more work to do what does that look like uh well i mean <laughs> i don't know pick a direction <laughs> um I, there's a yeah there's a lot that can be there's a lot that can be done there's a lot that can be changed um i think that right now in this moment that we're in I'm kind of curious to see where the allyship of things are going to go, because mm -hmm. when George Floyd was murdered in 2020 and we were all locked in our homes and people were forced to watch something that happens every day in America, mm -hmm. um, the reaction was, can you, uh, once again, can you believe that this happened? This is so terrible. Yes, I can believe that it's happened because I've read history. And if it's, you know, like if you look, if you look, you know, if you look in, you know, in, in history books, you read things and right. you learn things, you know, that these things are, well, the system isn't broken. It was literally designed this way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that kind of like the Black Lives Matter movement itself has in a way kind of become codified the same way that like um, like Pride has, where mm. you have all of these corporations selling rainbows and all of these things, but do they really care about those people, right? right. I've seen so many things that are like, ooh, well, you know, I care about Black Lives Matter, buy this T-shirt, you know, you get whatever percent off. And it's been really, I don't know, fascinating, maybe that's not the right word, but it's been really interesting to watch this happen because we've lived through this time where we have seen the beginning of this particular movement and now uh, in some ways it has kind of been turned into something that it's not. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that one of the things that needs to happen is that stuff needs to stop. Um, <laughs> you know, like this isn't a, this work isn't a, you know, isn't a let me get a picture, you know. And, it's not trendy. Like right. it shouldn't be a trend. Right. Yeah. 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 It's not a, it's not a, it's not a fad or anything. This is movement work that has been going on for generations. And personally, I understand that uh, many, many people have sacrificed in many, many ways for me to be here, for me to be able to sit here talking with mm -hmm. you, for us to have this conversation in this building. Um, and so... It's not a triv it's not a trivial thing to just be like, oh, I want to just, you know, show up and do this. No, I, we want to do tangible things to really help create a better world. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I think there's a lot of different directions that we can go. I think that uh, from a very, very basic standpoint, if people can learn to listen to those who are directly impacted by things, um, you know, and really take step outside themselves and maybe learn to listen what other people's experiences are like, I think that then collectively we can move forward and really start to really build more things. And, um, I, you know, it is happening for sure. You know, this, I mean, this work doesn't happen without, you know, without solidarity right. uh, and intersectionality. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I think that there's a, there's a long, long road that we have ahead, but I feel like right now in this particular moment, um, you know, we are we are making that change happen every day. And I want to touch on it, not 
a deep dive, but the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative, that's something that you are a part of. It's something that was established at Bluegrass Community Foundation, very near and dear to our hearts. Can you give us a glimpse of what that organization looks like and the steps that you all are taking to do that work that is needed? So um, outside of like take back cheap side mm-hmm. and stuff, um, you know, I've been really intentional about um, doing a lot of the work that I do in the background. See, there's um, that word intentional. Look at that. <laughs> you s- I'll, I'll put it in there. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you did. You Maybe you manifested me to say that a lot. Um, but yeah, I, you know, like I said, I've kind of made sure that, uh, you know, I navigate in ways that are a little bit better for my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative has been one of the things that I've been really, really blessed uh, and honored to be part of. We've been able to really to help fund some really incredible projects and particularly one that's near and dear to my heart, which is the Digital Access Project. Yes. Uh, but the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative is housed within the Bluegrass Community Foundation, and its purpose is to provide money and pros- to create black prosperity in Lexington. So we've done, uh, we've given several individual uh, grassroots leadership awards where we just award um, individuals in the community money uh, for, you know, with no, you know, with no strings no attached. Strings. Yep. They get to do whatever they, you know, they got to pay taxes on it, but um, <laughs> they, they get to do with that money what they choose to. And I think that in movement work, in any community work, you know, that kind of thing is incredibly invaluable because people are not getting paid most of the time to mm-hmm. do this work. And even when people are getting paid to do it, it is a job that, you know, still has parameters and things. Right. So it's been really wonderful to be able to reward people for their work and uh, their generosity. And then in addition to that, being able to fund programs um, that are really going to make a, a really substantial change in, in Lexington. Um, and as I speak to the, you know, the Digital Access Project, which is a project housed uh, with the Bluegrass Community Foundation, the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative, uh, the uh, University of Kentucky of uh, African American Americana Studies pro- Program, the CIS Institute, and uh, the Fayette County Clerk. I'm sure I'm missing somebody. Oh, the Knight Foundation. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, this, this project is all about digitizing records of uh formerly enslaved individuals. And it's personal to me because when we started uh, really talking to people about Cheapside and the Confederate monuments and the history of that space, one of the things that was told to me by historians and reputable people around town was that these records were destroyed. uh, They were lost years ago. It would never happen. And then through the Reimagined Cheapside project, it was made aware to, I guess, our camp right. um, that these have been sitting in the basement of the county clerk's ho- office the entire time. Right. And it's so easy to just dismiss this work when you say, oh, well, that doesn't exist anymore. Too bad. Sorry. I mean, I think that when you look at the history of black people and, and you know in this country and how it's been preserved, it was something that didn't sound out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, getting these records in the in a way that w- to where it will be digitized and accessible for people 
to find their family history, find more history about Lexington. Like this is going to be, this is going to change so many lives. It's going to be able to connect people in a way that hasn't been possible. And I think that, you know, I should just frame this, that it's not that when you go into the county clerk's office and you ask to look at these records, you're not going to walk up to a page and say, oh, well, here is this person who was enslaved to this person. No, what you need to understand is that my ancestors were treated as if they were not people. So they were property. So when you look at the wills and deeds, you know, stereotypically, when, you know, when a teenager turns 16, somebody buys them their first car, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, oh, I'm going to give you this car. I got it a used car lot. Well, the same thing used to happen to people where people would be gifted enslaved individuals, you know, as a, as a present. Right. Um, And so the names and identities of these people in these records are in with like furniture. There's not a section where you can say, oh, I want to go and find more about, you know, all of the enslaved people. No, they are, they were property. So they're listed within that. So that's like another part of the work that's a little bit, that's really difficult is kind of reckoning with that. Right. But I have to tell you, being part of this project is an absolute honor for me. Um, And the, when I think about the potential that this has for so many people, this is what we do this for. That is the next generation. That is the legacy that we leave behind is this is something that is now available that was not available before that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm just really, really honored and blessed to be able to be part of this. And the fact that, you know, there is funding behind it. So there's a machine behind it. And this work is going to get done. Those people who are helping are going to get paid, you know, like it all the way around top to bottom. This is, uh, this is a really, really incredible thing. And it's the first uh, time anything like this has been done in Kentucky. So we also get to claim that. We had Vanessa Holden mm-hmm. on the show. Mm-hmm. We've had Yvonne Giles, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about. Shay Brown is in the lobby now. Oh. <laughs> He's about to come in here and we're about to chat. So we are all about the Digital Access Project. It's become an obsession mm-hmm. of mine. So I love getting to hear everybody's perspective on it. Um, we are going to jump into our next segment, which we like to call BGCF Fast Facts. Okay. Where I give you a question, and without thinking about it too much, you're going to give me the first thing that pops up. No, that might be weird. It, I'm excited about it. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. What are you reading right now? Wikipedia. Oh. What are you watching right now? What am I watching right now? Um, the Bad Batch. What's that? The Star Wars show. It's oh, cartoon. I like it. Okay. What are you listening to right now? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, well, the album that I had in my car on the way over here was uh, the Eric Gales Band record from 1993. Okay. What are you eating right now? Um, I haven't eaten anything today, but I did have some gum before I walked in here. Delicious. What flavor? Spearmint. Mm. Well, technically, I guess it would be called a rain, but yeah. Rain? It's spearmint. <laughs> it's spearmint gum. <laughs> what are you most scared of? What am I most scared of? I'm, I know this is supposed to be fast facts, but now I'm like, I mean, I don't, I'm having it. <laughs> I, maybe I should say I'm most afraid of having an existential crisis right now from you asking me that question. Love it. What are you most proud of? 
I'm proud that um, <laughs> I'm I'm proud that those statues are gone. I'm proud that the park is named after Mr. Tandy, and I'm proud that there are many, many, many people in this city that are continually working to make it a better place. Mm, amen. Who do you look up to? <laughs> My mom. What are you looking forward to? Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Hey, me too. Why do you love our community? I love the people in this community. I love this community because this community has shown me a lot of love. And um, I don't think that I would be the person that I am if I was in a different community. Uh, and there's just there's just so many talented, incredible people here in this city. Mm. Why do you love yourself? Oh, I don't know that I do, to be honest. That's an honest answer. We get that a lot in here. Last question. Where can people find you? Where can people get in touch with you? You're a busy man. Mm -hmm. So how can people get in touch? Um, you know, I need a person, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I need a person so that I don't have to answer things because yes. sometimes just responding to messages is, is an anxiety trigger. DeBron um, needs an intern. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, look, I don't have any money to pay anybody, but I'll figure it out. I don't want an intern. I need an assistant. Yeah. Um, how can people find me? Well, I'm on the air nine to noon, uh, Monday through Fridays and Saturday nights at nine on 91.3 WUKY. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can figure out, you know, how to follow me there. I am I am on the social medias, but I'm currently taking a social media break. As everyone should. Everybody should do that. Debron, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, please come back and visit, and I'm sure we will have tons more to talk about in the future. Oh, and I guess I should say we'll continue to do good. <gasps> we will continue to do good. Oh, we will continue to do good. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Do Good Radio Hour, brought to you by Bluegrass Community Foundation. We'll be back next week right here on Radio Lex, or you can listen to us anytime on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit us at BGCF.org to stay up to date on all of the latest giving and do good opportunities in our community. Until next time, I'm Courtney Turner. Do good and be well. You are listening to the Do Good Radio Hour on Radio Lex, WLXU 93.9 LP FM Lexington. Our theme song is Happy Tune, written and performed by Brother Smith. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Radio Lex, its board of directors, or Bluegrass Community Foundation. The views expressed are solely my own and the guests'.